0: Well, we are talking about oxymorons today, Uh, and I was thinking about, actually, I read through our passage, and then I was thinking about Lord of the Rings, which I don't know if you've read Lord of the Rings or if you've seen the movie, maybe, but uh, it's this well-known story. I don't know if you've heard of it, but... Um, and in the story of the Lord of the Rings, it's like a fantastical story, and so there's all sorts of creatures we've never heard of before, or beings, or, you know, all these fantastical things that are in the story, and one of them is this creature called an ant, E-N-T, ant. and the ants are um, these ancient creatures from, like, the beginning of, of the world, and they look like trees, and they walk around. There's a you know, picture of one in the middle of that, right there. Um, the so the ant looks like a tree, and then he's walking around. And they call them tree herders or tree shepherds. Um, and these ants care for the world and the forest, especially. That's kind of their role, and they. They herd the forest around, I guess, if forests could walk around, which in this story they can. And the ants are wise and they're slow and they talk like this very slowly and with great thought. And they make their decisions very slowly. They're very wise. And if you, if you get them to finally make a decision to commit to something, they are all in. And they make a formidable enemy, or if you're on their team, a formidable ally. Now, trees that walk around just right away strikes me as being a bit of an oxymoron. I don't know if you know what an oxymoron is. An oxymoron is two words that go together that contradict each other. So walking trees, that would fit, right? Other ones might be poor little rich girl. Doesn't doesn't work. Or an instant classic. It's like, okay. Or a working vacation. You should never do that. It's an oxymoron. And some oxymorons are meant to be humorous, like military intelligence or rap music, right? Are you with me? Or American culture. Okay, okay, I'm going to stop now before I get into trouble. And this word comes to mind as I, you know, all these kind of conflicting things as I read our passage. Because there's all these, like, conflicting images. There's walking trees. There's built up, they are built up like buildings. And they're established like documents. And then they're overflowing like a beer stein or something. Or whatever overflows for you. Oxymoron illustrations. And Paul uses all this conflicting imagery to describe the road to Christian maturity. And there's all these really interesting pictures in there. So it's great. And the life he described is marked by certain characteristics and qualities. Now, we're in the middle of a series. So I I know we've got lots of guests with us. But we're in the middle of a series. And the series is that we've been looking at the letter to the Colossians that's in the Bible. It was a letter written to the church in Colossae in a place in the Roman Empire city and it was like written to regular people in a small town living in a very powerful culture the Roman Empire so they're a lot like us you know these colossian people small town in a powerful culture and their struggle their their difficulty was to live as though Jesus alone was enough that was the struggle and i think it's our struggle too and their tendency and temptation was to add things to their lives, like, you know, to the good news of Jesus, like maybe some religious rules. They added some of that, and, and a bit of the next-door-neighbor mysticism. We'll add some of that, and a little bit of mix and match to make up kind of what they believed about life and about God. And there was also this hierarchy that was growing in the church between people who knew the secrets of the kingdom and the mysteries of the kingdom and the people who didn't know those special things. And so, Paul and Timothy write a letter into this situation. And so, there's a lot for us to learn here, too. Today's passage is really, it's almost like a thesis statement for the letter. It's, a, it's like a summary or a take-home. And so, we're camped just on two verses only. Just two verses. And so, uh, we'll read them together. And here they are. They're on the screen. A special day. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Let me read it again. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. We keep growing to maturity by living gratefully centered in Jesus. We keep growing to maturity by living gratefully centered in Jesus. Paul begins by qualifying the journey of the Christian life. He says, he says, as you received something, so you need to walk in it. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. And my question is, well, what does that mean? What does that mean? To walk in him as you received him. Now the word walk for, you know, for us, it's like, oh, walking, you know, for Jewish people who heard that word, it meant something. They had a lot of connection to it and they used it a lot to talk about um, ethical conduct, like how you live your life. That's what your walk meant. It meant your, like, how you're making decisions and living your life. The NASB footnote says how you lead your life. Or the NIV says, continue to live your lives. That's how they would describe walking. So the question is like, what does the Christian life, what's it supposed to look like? What's it supposed to look like? And Paul spends a whole bunch of the rest of the letter talking about what it's supposed to look like. But he says here, the way you received Christ is the way you're supposed to live in him. And it reminds me a lot of Galatians. Another letter Paul wrote. And in the letter to the Galatians, Paul writes this. He says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Love the sarcasm. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? Or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning... By means of the spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain if it really was in vain? So again, I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? The point is that my new life, my conduct and my behavior and my walk and my everyday life is only possible for those who trust Jesus to save them and then live by his power. The expression to receive Jesus which I, when I when I look at that passage I think, "Oh, when, how you received Jesus. And a lot of us have this English expression. We know it as, you know, people say, oh, have you received Jesus? Or, oh, you need to receive Jesus. And it's an English expression. And when we say it to one another, maybe you've heard it, people often will think about um, that it is about responding to the invitation of Jesus. So if I receive Jesus, I'm responding to his invitation. And I'm asking him to come and to dwell in me and to live in me. Okay, so And that's good and fine, and there's place, lots of places where Paul's talking about that. But this isn't one of those places, because Paul doesn't have that English expression. This isn't his expression, that's our expression. What Paul is talking about in this expression, in this passage, is talking about the transmission of teaching. It's like that, that teaching is transmitted from one person to another, or one generation to another. That's the picture. And maybe we might connect it to things Jesus said about his words. He says things like, after the Sermon on the Mount, he gets up and he gives this two-chapter-long sermon to all these people. And he says all this crazy stuff in the Sermon on the Mount. And then near the end of it, he says this in Matthew 7, 24. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like, and then he goes on and gives another illustration hears my words and does them. It's like the transmission of teaching, the way of Jesus. Or in John 15, 7, Jesus says this, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So there's this, this picture of like, it's more than just, you know, the power of Jesus. It's that my life is changed by his way. And so Paul's warning and exhortation is, don't change or add to the way of Jesus. So Paul says, we're going to walk rooted. It's our first oxymoron. We're going to walk rooted. You know, why, why do we need to be rooted? Why is that important? It's important because we live in a shifting culture. Like it's, our culture is like a storm right now. It's not always like that, I don't think. Maybe it is, but Right now, it's a storm. You go out there, you read the paper, talk to your neighbors. It's a storm. Things are blowing around like crazy. And and people are wrestling with, with all sorts of things. Lots of things. How can there be a literal hell? I had this conversation this week with my neighbor. Why can't everyone be saved? Or people wrestling, why does God care about my sex life? Gender identification, euthanasia, ethics, morality, all sorts of things are shifting right now in our culture. Like the wind is blowing. The pressure's on. The heat is turned up. And the mark of a mature Christian is to be rooted. To walk in a way that's rooted. When we chose our logo uh, for our church, we did it with um, intentionality. We prayed and we thought, and we prayed some more, and we looked at different things, and, and we chose it not just because it looked cool, but because there was a meaning to it for us. And there's an image of a tree that is centered in the cross. The tree is the cross, and um, it has the leaves that are that are surrounding it that are changing color, representing our transformation. That happens in our lives. And then also there's a scattering. There's leaves that are blowing off the tree. That go out to the world. And uh, this is the picture. And the picture of a tree in the Bible is very common. There's lots of places where the tree is the picture. A biblical image. A tree by the river. Or a tree with fruit. Or trees that weather the storm. Or trees that bear fruit in drought. Or trees that um, their fruit is the is food for the nations, or there's the tree of life. There's all these different pictures. So Ezekiel forty seven, twelve, Psalm one, Jeremiah seventeen, eight, and then one of the places we talk about a lot is Isaiah, where they're talking about the declaration of Jubilee. And this is what it says in sixty one verse three that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. That he may be glorified. We're a planting of the Lord for the glory of God. The, the Greek in our passage is literally it's having been firmly rooted. Having been firmly rooted. So how do we walk rooted? Or how do we live rooted is really the question. How do we live in a way that's rooted? Now anytime you say the word root, I think of plants, right? Plants have roots plants or trees, or if you are familiar with parts of the Bible, you'll know that there's the picture of a vine that also might make you think as you talk about, as we talk about roots. You might even be thinking about a few weeks ago when we were talking about Colossians 1 verse 10. We just preached on this, where it says that we would be bearing fruit. This is the prayer of Paul, that we would be bearing fruit in every good work and growing There's that picture of something that's alive and growing, like a plant. Bearing fruit and growing. So rooted and bearing fruit and growing, all this connects together. And it really should make us think of Jesus' command, which I think is the essence of being rooted, which is to abide. That's what Jesus says. Abide. Abide. John 15, verse 4 to 5, he says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the fruit and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. Abide. This word over and over and over. Remain. It means make your home. Connect, form roots, stay, don't go, stay, stay in him. Draw power and life and nutrients from the vine. And then what do grapevines? what kind of fruit do they bear? Grapes, thank you. That was not a rhetorical question. So what does a Jesus vine bear? Jesus, Jesus. So we bear Jesus' fruit. We abide in him, we are rooted in him, connected, and then we bear Jesus' fruit. We demonstrate, reveal him to the world. And secondly, we walk built up. So I remember sitting with Phil and Pam at the very beginning as we were getting Jubilee all sorted out and getting ready to launch or we just launched and we were talking about their family and, and their, how they were part, going to participate and serve and where did they see themselves. And then Phil had this like offhanded comment. He was like, well, we're part of the bricks and mortar of Jubilee. We're part of the bricks and mortar of Jubilee. And I was like, that's a cool picture, bricks and mortar. And I actually did a whole sermon series on it, bricks and mortar, because I like the, the picture. And it's a biblical picture. When Paul writes the word built up, he moves from agriculture to architecture. He's changing pictures. Suddenly, there's this picture of something being built, like fabricated, like put together. And the mark of a mature Christian or Christian maturity is current construction. Current construction. Something is happening. The NASB has a, is a little more literal in there. They translate this, now being built up in him. And now being built up in him. Something's happening to us right now. First Peter 2 verse 5 uses the same expression, and this is how Peter uses it. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. To be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And there's something that's happening in the day-to-day life of a believer. We are being built in all the things that are happening to us. We are being built into a spiritual house for the Lord. So if we went around and we're like, oh, where's God? And we ask people, well, where do you think God is? Where, Where do you think God is? People back in the day, way, way back, would be like, well, God's in heaven. And sometimes, you know, he's here in the omnipresence. Like, he knows everything, and he's here everywhere. But, like, he's not, like, here, here. And then suddenly, God would show up. He would show up in the angel of the Lord. Like, you're at your tent, and you're, you know, cooking some food, and suddenly, the angel of the Lord shows up. And it was like, oh, yeah, we had a meal, and then we sacrificed, and fire came from heaven because the angel of the Lord was there. Whoa, God showed up. Or God is in the river wrestling as the angel of the Lord again. Wrestling Jacob. Or in the fiery furnace. Oh, who's in there? The son of God. Wow. Or up on the mountain. There's smoke and there's fire. Who's up there? God's up there. And then Egypt. And God was in the cloud. And he was in the fire at night. God was right there. We could see in the cloud. There's God. He's right there. The presence of God. And then there was a tabernacle with very specific instructions. We're going to build, and we got to have a curtain, and we got to do purification. It's got to be like this. It's got to be this long and this far and this thing. And then we got an inner one. Poop, poop. And we got all these things. Boo, boo. And we built it exactly right. That's not right. A little bit more. Yes, that's right. Okay, exactly. Where's God? He's in the ark of the covenant inside of the tabernacle. That's the presence of God. He's right there. And it's like, okay, what's that? Well, that's just the shadow. That's the shadow of the temple. The temple, that's where God's presence is. This beautiful, that's not the temple. It's just a cathedral. I feel like it's like, I would feel like that. Beautiful. And God's presence is there. This is where God, and we've built it just so, and with gold, and it's beautiful, and there's a big curtain and God's presence. Don't go in there. That's where God is. You go in there, you'll die, unless you wash your hands a lot of times. Like, be careful. Where is God now? In Jerusalem in the temple? This is what Paul says. Ephesians two nineteen to 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That all sounds really good. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. What does that mean? You're like, what? We just went into a building? What's the building? In him, it continues, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Where is God? He's dwelling inside you and me. We are the temple. And he comes and he lives in us by his Spirit. So how are people going to encounter God? They don't go to the temple. They talk to you. They meet you. They see God in you. We are the dwelling place for the Spirit. Our purpose is to make the invisible God visible through our lives. To reveal his glory. To be built into a spiritual house. Living stones on the one foundation, which is Jesus Christ. So my question for you is, how's the construction going? How's it going? Is there work happening? Do you see the building happening in your life? Is there a stop work order? Anyone feel like that? I'm, I'm, this, I'm having a, uh, we got an inspection coming. So we're, we're just paused right now. We are meant to be built up. Everything working to build us into this dwelling place for the Spirit. And thirdly, Paul says we walk established. We walk established. We have a, we have a sign in our house in the dining room that Lauren got made, and it says uh, the Headley family established in 2002, which is when we got married. And uh, so she had this sign made, and people see it and like, "Oh, that's cute. Oh, that's neat. You know, that's the Headley family. That's when it started. Something happened." And uh, you see this this expression of established with a date. You see it in on companies or storefronts. You see it in all sorts of places, and it means something. It means something started. Then they have a date when something started. Something began, and we have this word established. And maybe some of you are thinking about, we talked about established also a few weeks ago. And we talked about how the word meant foundation. Established was like foundational. And this word established is different from that word. The Greek words are different. That word established meant to build a foundation on Jesus. This word established means more like confirmed. So it has this picture of strengthening or sustaining, but to be confirmed. Confirmed. And one of the places it's used is Mark 16, 20. So the disciples went out everywhere and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed or established the message by accompanying signs. So they're they're preaching and they're like, are we doing this right? Is Is this what we're supposed to be? And then it's confirmed with all these miracles happening. And they say, whoa, okay, God's moving here. It's confirmed. Something happens. It's like maybe a legal entity is formed. When you establish your business, you do it. There's legal papers you sign. There's something created. Something happens in us. Something's confirmed or established. Maybe even some of these things remind you of baptism, which Paul is going to use in the next part as imagery, talking about baptism as part of that confirmation. We experience conversion at a certain date. Our hearts are turned to the Lord, are transformed. And then it's confirmed in the waters of baptism. We go and we say publicly, yes, this is what I want. We declare Jesus Christ is Lord in front of everybody. And for us, our baptisms are often at Alouette Lake. And so, really, it's in front of everybody. You're like, oh, and those people are having a picnic. all those people are just going for a swim. And I'm going to declare Jesus Christ is Lord. It's a beautiful moment. And we express repentance that we've turned from our old life to follow Jesus. And we descend into the waters as with him in death. And then we come out of the waters as with him in resurrection. And we are empowered, filled with the Spirit, to live a Christian life. To live the life in his way. And the mark of Christian maturity is a life that is lived in this faith. Marked by a holy sacrament. Baptism. Say, that's a, that's a holy thing. We're going to do that. It's going to mark something in our life. Now, it's important to distinguish the faith from faith. So those are two different things. Faith is my trust in Jesus, my belief. You know, so I have faith in God. And then there's the faith, which is like, well, the Christian faith. So this thing people call the religion of Christianity, which hopefully isn't so religious, but it is the way of Jesus, that we walk in the way of Jesus. The message says um, our passage this way. It says, you know your way around the faith. Now start, now do what you've been taught. Schools out. Quit studying the subject and start living it. It's not just about your trust and belief in God. It's, it's about how you live in the way of Jesus. How does what you believe about God change how you live? How you walk? How does your life look like the way of Jesus? How does your Jesus knowledge, the things you know about Jesus or about the Bible or about God, how does that change how you live or lead you to more love in your relationships with people? Or what are you doing to be strengthened in your faith? How do you study? How do you learn? How do you apply yourself to know God more? We started um, this church with... I mean, we didn't really know what we were doing at the time. Well, we still don't. Um, But we started with the hope of a growing Christian community. And so, you know, we didn't have a system that we were like, oh, we're going to do this system. This is the great church planting system. So we just looked at different things. And one of the things I found that I was like, oh, this looks really appealing to me, was it's called Simple Church. And so we said, oh, this sounds like something I could do. I'm a simple person. (laughs) Maybe I need a simple way. And so we said... Okay, we're going to do Sundays. We're going to do a Sunday gathering. We're going to meet together. We're going to be encouraged in the word. We're going to be encouraged as we worship together. We're going to pray for each other. We're going to share in communion in this beautiful sacrament. We're going to speak grace over one another. And then we're going to scatter. We're going to go off to the places where we live and where we work and you know, where we go to school. And, and we're going to live for Jesus in all, in all those places. And then midweek... Small groups. We're going to meet together again, hopefully, and we will gather in smaller groups and we'll get to know each other in a more intimate way. We'll share our lives. Maybe we'll eat together and we'll talk about, discuss some different elements of of what we're learning. And then we're going to pray together. It's this picture. And then we said, and the third one would be service, that we would encourage each other. We're going to serve this city. We're going to serve the world. We're going to make a difference. By doing things outside of these walls, we're going to volunteer. We're going to try to, you know, give our money together to make a difference and an impact in our city and in our world to make Jesus known. The fourth thing Paul talks about is to walk gratefully. Uh, the BC Lions head coach just retired. If you don't know anything about the CFL, it's the Canadian Football League. And the BC Lions just got out, so the the playoffs go on, they're out, and so their head coach, Wally Buono, retired. He's been uh, in the CFL for 46 years, first as a player, and then he was a coach. 46 years, and he's one of the most respected people in the league, I think, um, ever, maybe. Like, he is up there. And so they had this press conference, and it was a big press conference because he's an important guy, and this was an important moment. And so they, they interviewed him for the press conference, and they said, uh, one of the first questions is, um, how do you feel about your career? Or tell us about your legacy. How do you feel about that? or you know. And, and while sat there, and he tried to speak, and then he broke down, and then he tried to speak again, and he broke down, and he Took a full minute to compose himself, which I know that doesn't sound like very long, but if everyone's sitting waiting for you to say something, a minute is a long time. Like just time yourself for a full minute. It's like it's long. He took a full minute. And then finally, when he composed himself, this is what he said God's been good to me. I keep asking him, Why me? And I still don't know why. Have I been blessed? Yes. Have I had to endure a lot? Yes. But it's always been with God's strength. This is how he responds to tell me about how you feel about your career as the most respected head coach in football. His interview is a study in gratitude. Aesop said, gratitude is the sign of noble souls. And that's possible. After three passives, Paul shifts to an active. From rooted and built up and established, he says, overflowing with gratitude. One commentator calls this the summary of all the others. So that if you lived your life rooted in Christ, if you, if you were built up continually in Christ, and if you were established in him, your life would overflow with gratitude. This would be the summary. This is what would happen. A couple of days ago, I came into the kitchen early in the morning, and I walked in, and Lauren was at the counter, and there was coffee everywhere. It was all over the counter. It was all over the floor, coffee grounds. There's, it was like all of a coffee maker. And I walked in, and my first thought was, what have you done to my coffee? <laughs> and then I didn't say that because I'm a wise husband of many years, sometimes. And that time I was, and I didn't see anything, and I said, oh, what happened? And she said, I came in to get the coffee, and there was nothing in the coffee pot, and it said it had done it. So then she looked, and the water's gone, and so she opened the little slot, and the coffee grinds had been ground too too fine. I don't know who did that. Wasn't me. Yes, it was me. And... The, they were too fine, so they plugged the coffee maker. So when she opened it, all the water had been waiting, and it just went, and it just overflowed everywhere. All over everything. Like, coffee grounds, I'm still finding coffee grounds. It's crazy. This word, abounding, that Paul uses, is, it's a, it, the Greek word is perasoul, And it's to superabound, which is even more than abound. It's like superabound. abound. If that's even possible to be in excess, to be superfluous, to also to cause to superabound or excel, to make abound, to have abundance, to be more abundant, to be better, the better, to have enough and to spare, to exceed and excel and increase. Think of Piglet who, said, who noticed that even though he had a very small heart, it could hold a rather large amount of gratitude. Says A.A. A. Milne. The definition is a thing which comes in abundance and overflows unto one to be abundantly furnished with. And I think that's not usually what I think about gratitude. When I think about that word, that abounding, that coffee grounds everywhere and on everything, I don't think about gratitude. That's not usually the thing I think is abounding. 2 Corinthians 4.15 says this, For it is all for your sakes, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. See, gratitude is a mark of grace. Gratitude is a mark of grace. When grace is abounding, gratitude is abounding too. And when I ask myself... How do I get more gratitude? Because I'm thankful for my food at dinnertime, but I don't know that gratitude is abounding and overflowing and super abounding. So how do I get more of that? The word is thanksgiving or thankfulness or gratitude. It is eucharistia, which is ding, the word that we get Eucharist from. Gratitude, thankfulness, actively grateful the giving of thanks. And this picture of more and more grace gives us more and more gratitude, I think fits this picture. That if we were going to go somewhere to get more gratitude, a good place would be this table or this cross. Back in the day they would, before they did their communion, they would, well, not back in the day, still today people do it. We don't, but people do. Do a confession. It's a confession, and it's a beautiful thing. It's that one of them says this, most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we've left undone. We've not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent for the sake of your son Jesus. Have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in, In your will. And walk in your ways. To the glory of your name. Amen. Gratitude flows at the cross. It flows when I remember that I didn't qualify myself. Oh yeah. I just remembered. It wasn't me. Because I wasn't good enough. Or beautiful enough. Or talented enough. Or wise enough. Or experienced enough. Or smart enough. Or skilled enough. Or whole enough that his body was broken and his blood was shed and his life was offered for my life and his death surrendered so that I could be free. Another um, prayer they would pray in the, from the 1300s in response to this table. So there would be the confession and then there would be this beautiful prayer of response and this is one of them. Soul of Christ Christ sanctify me. Body of Christ, save me. Blood of Christ, inebriate me. I like that line. <laughs> Water from the side of Christ, wash me. Passion of Christ, strengthen me. O good Jesus, hear me. Within thy wounds, hide me. Separated from thee, let me never be. From the malignant enemy, defend me. At the hour of death, call me to come to thee, bid me, that I may praise thee in the company of thy saints for all eternity. Amen. See, from this table flows gratitude, thankfulness, overflowing. It superabounds. And the mark of Christian maturity is an excess of gratitude. Not a circumstantial offering like, oh, that was a good meal, I'm thankful. Or, oh, things went well for me, now I'm thankful. But a confession of worship and a confession of grace. They asked Wally Buono, what, is he, what are you going to do now? You're not head coaching, are you going to play golf, or what are you going to do? Wally said this, I hope I can help other people. I don't know what that." is today, but God doesn't put you in a position like this and then cut you out, I think your wisdom and your influence has to be used for good. That's what he says is his life is about now. That's the mark of a life filled with gratitude. We keep growing to maturity by living gratefully centered in Jesus. We walk or live or lead our lives in the same way we began them in Jesus, rooted in him built up in him, established in the faith and abounding in gratitude. Let's pray.